Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Verisage Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are talking with Armanino audit partner, Ken Teasdale. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Good. Good week, Ron. Good. I, we should have run the show probably at 420, but uh, <laughs> we'll, 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 we won't do any Mary Jane jokes, I promise. Uh, but, that's uh, good. Let me read Ken in here. Ken is an audit partner and is responsible for audit review and compilation engagements, which include large privately held corporations, partnerships, and employee benefit plans. He currently leads the cannabis audit practice at Armanino, which is one of the reasons that we wanted to bring him in because we know there's certain issues. We talk about that industry a lot. So who better to talk to than an audit partner that knows all the ins and outs and complications. So I'm not going to read the rest of his bio because I'm going to ask him to, uh, recite his uh, background to us, but Ken, welcome to the soul of enterprise. Thanks, Ron. So appreciative of you having me. Oh, it's wonderful. So Ken, how did you get into accounting? <laughs> <laughs> the age old question, right? Um, I, I, I was one of those uh, thousands who made the mistake of, of saying, I'm good at math. I must be great at accounting. And uh, that's what drew me in at, at first. I ended up at uh, Cal State Northridge uh, figuring my way out in, in Southern California. And once I knew that uh, I wanted to give the accounting degree a try, there was really no better place than Cal State Northridge at the time, a great accounting uh, program there. I uh, decided to stay, get my degree, and then figure out this whole public accounting piece. Uh, got to my first firm and, and off we went. That was way back in the uh, early 90s. Oh, wow. Okay. I entered the profession in 84 with the then big eight firm. Where did you start your career? I started at a, at a single office firm called, at the time, Grobstein Horwath and Company that since merged in with Crow and became Crow Horwath uh, long after I left uh, the firm. But at that time, it was a, a large apparel firm, did a lot of apparels and textiles. That's kind of where I cut my teeth in the audit uh, industry. Um, and uh, they continue to this day. And then you had a stint in private, didn't you? You worked for a what, an inline skate company? I did. That was an interesting experience. So I was a senior at the time at Grobstein, uh, worked on a startup client that was in the inline uh, space, as you mentioned, inline roller skates, ro roller blade, uh, Bauer, all those uh, type of brands at the time. Uh, they were a startup. I managed the account uh, pretty much by myself. It was small. They needed a CFO because they wanted to go public. And they made me an offer uh, right in the middle of busy season. I uh, was way too loyal to my firm. I said, no, I can't. I can't do that. They came back again to me in the summer about four months later with, uh, as they say, an offer I couldn't refuse. Yes. Uh, I, I jumped ship and uh, did a public offering with that company. Uh, talk about a masterclass in, in business. 
uh, both from an operations standpoint and being part of a prospectus, writing it, subsequently doing a roadshow, uh, both in the States and in Europe, presenting at, uh, you know, the ripe old age of, you know, 26, 27 years old to, you know, and, and a huge investor group. Talk about intimidation, but at the time, ignorance was bliss, and, and I just kind of went with it. Um, uh, that was a phenomenal experience in the world of business. You know, how to make payroll, how, you know, how to hire people, how to scale. It was, uh, it was a fantastic experience. Uh, unfortunately, the company didn't end up making it. It was uh, at the downside of the fad of inline skating and just mm -hmm. couldn't penetrate the market well enough. Uh, saw the writing on the wall and I never disliked public accounting. I always loved it, actually, um, but just wanted to try this. Uh, and ended up going back to public accounting with a small firm that uh, ended up staying there for 16 years until uh, we merged in with Armanino. And what year was that? that you so merged? I started with, uh, yeah, merged uh, January 1st, 2016. So we're a little over five oh. and a half years uh, merged in. Okay. Oh, and just one last question on that IPO that you did with the skate company. Was that pre socks? Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. So that would have been 97, 98. Uh, we, we were certainly small enough that it wouldn't have mattered either way. It was a, it was a pretty small offering. Uh, so we did not have to deal with that at all. Thank goodness. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine. So you're at Armanino and then tell me how you got interested in the cannabis industry. It, it, one of those, a crazy luck, I guess you would, you would call it. Uh, I had been with the firm at that point about two years. Uh, January of 18 is when California legalized the adult use cannabis in California. So we had, as a firm, had been practicing in cannabis for several years prior to that, only in tax and consulting. So we were doing some compliance work. We were doing some software or business consulting uh, audit. We were not allowed to touch. Once it became legal for adult use, uh, we started to organize and say, okay, uh, the, the firm uh, kind of uh, unveiled the gates and, and, and let us practice as, as auditors in this space. Uh, one of my partners uh, who has since retired, Gary Garbowitz, uh, from our West LA office, raised his hand to try to, let's just say, put a tent over the circus and let's organize an actual cannabis practice. He was kind enough to reach out to me. Uh, he was a, a good friend and colleague and say, Ken, what do you think about running the audit practice in the cannabis space? And uh, to tell the honest truth, I had to sit and think about it for a little bit. Am I comfortable in this space? Does this make sense for me? is this going to be the wild west of, of clients that uh, maybe wouldn't be uh, you know, my cup of tea? I really put a lot of thought into it, did a bunch of research and came to the conclusion, this is a viable opportunity. It is an incredibly huge growth market. What other time am I gonna have a chance to create and run an industry from scratch at my firm? And I dove in. So this was probably April of 2018 that we started our efforts, um, grassroots, on the ground, knocking on doors, talking to colleagues, and trying to build a cannabis practice. And it was slow at first, but it has uh, been going like gangbusters as of late. 
Oh, that's awesome. Well, I want to ask you about about your decision because it's 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 interesting to me. I I can imagine some of the hesitancy, but then you got to look at it and say, well, but there's these are respectable players that are entering the market, aren't they? And they're they're well funded companies, and um, it's it's not like the wild west. So that is what's happening today. Exactly what you described: professional, reputable. Uh, C-suite executives and investors that are getting into the space. When I first started prospecting for potential clients, interviewing them, doing background checks as our firm's client acceptance process, we found some folks that we would not want to do business with. And it was a little bit of the Wild West. And accounting was an afterthought for most of these organizations. They were not deep into their books and records. They were too busy raising money, trying to get their license finalized and trying to get that business going. The books and records were an afterthought. And we had to say no to quite a few potential opportunities. We didn't just get into the market and gobble everybody up and figure it out later. We had to be smart about it. We knew we did. We had competitors in the space who were doing exactly that. And we were hearing not good things about those firms who would not get their audits done on time. They would not have expertise and, and, and deliver staff that knew what they were doing. We knew we had to train from the, from the bottom up and just make good decisions from the get-go. And thank goodness we did because uh, several um, prospects we said no to, it would not have been a good idea to uh, onboard them as a client. And that has made for a slower process. We've really had to be careful. We had a, probably our first year, we only onboarded a few audit clients, honestly. And once we started getting those under our belt and getting our name out there, we found the market was starving for a firm like us uh, who was reputable, who had expertise, who had leverage and could provide a great service. Uh, all-encompassing holistic service to these clients. And we've had tremendous success and growth since that time. And Ken, are those clients in the, uh, where are they in the supply chain? Are they the growers? Or are they the dispensaries? Both? Can you talk a little bit about All that? Of All of it. All of it. Since the, the trend, and I'm sure we'll get into this deeper later, the trend is to be completely vertical and have that entire process under your roof from you know, seed to sale, as they call it, from a grower mm. to a to a distributor uh, to a dispensary uh, and everything in between. Uh, we have clients singularly in all of those spaces. We have growers, we have dispensers, we have distributors, we have wholesalers, um, and and obviously dispensaries at the at the tail end. So um, we have a mix of all of it, and we are seeing a definite trend in the market where people want to go vertical. And a lot of the audit opportunities right now are based on acquisitions or mergers, where those bigger players wanting to, wanted to take over uh, a hole that they do not have uh, in, their, in their company, where they need to buy a distribution network. They need to buy a dispensary license. So they buy a couple dispensaries. So uh, we're seeing a lot of consolidation in the market right now. And these are in all states or do you focus just on a particular region? 
We probably, at the moment, focus mainly in California. We have several MSOs or multi-state operators that are in a few different states. Uh, My personal uh, book of business in the cannabis space is almost entirely in California. However, we do have uh, some of my clients uh, have warehouses or distribution facilities in Portland, Oregon, Las Vegas, Nevada, um, some uh, states very close to California. Wow. Uh, you know, I was looking at, uh, I was reading some of the lines that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote in the Standing Akimbo case, where he says, you know, this contradictory and unstable state of affairs strains basic principles of federalism and conceals traps for the unwary. There's a ton of traps here, isn't there, for, there the, business, the, the, for the business owner? Very much so. It is a very challenging tax environment for a cannabis company, lots of different types of taxes. And although that's not where I practice, uh, I'm very close to our, uh, our tax leadership in, in cannabis. And it's excise tax, it's sales tax, it's income tax. There are multiple layers uh, of tax that they need to be aware of that aren't so um, apparent to, to someone who's just joining the business and getting good help to navigate through those tax waters really, really important. Um, And there are a lot of pitfalls in that arena along the way. Uh, Compliance is huge in the cannabis space. So um, you really need good advice to to navigate your way through it. Wow. Well, I know Ed wants to talk to you a little bit more about those tax complications. I I know there's issues with the deductions and what you can deduct and what you can at the federal and state level. So Ken, this is great. We're unfortunately, we're up against our first break and folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes with our interview with Ken Teasdale today at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You 
are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We're back with accounting and auditing partner Ken Teasdale from Armanino is specializing in the cannabis space. Ken, this is an issue near and dear to my heart. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a, a full-on libertarian, capital L libertarian, but I'm a, I, have a, I have a very strange, uh, uh, let's call it Venn diagram, in that I'm a libertarian who has never consumed in any form marijuana and never fired a gun. So, okay, <laughs> which is very limited. That's a very limited circle um, for th- those three intersections, but. I understand now that it's it, marijuana is to some degree legalized in 45, if I have this right, 45 out of 50 states, I believe. Um, and which, but it's still a, a, on the schedule, schedule one drug, which is there is yep. no scientific evidence, not even worthy of study at the federal level. This certainly has to cause complications with regard to uh, things like taking MasterCard or Visa. Or, yeah. or things like that. So talk a little bit about the complications that are laid out because of this, as uh, Clarence Thomas put it, un- unsustainable uh, uh, legal regime. Absolutely. It's a great question, Ed. Uh, banking, number one problem in, in the cannabis space. Um, it has caused folks to take duffel bags of cash to try to pay payroll taxes, pay vendors, uh, incredibly dangerous. I mean, we're talking about armed guards escorting them to uh, vendors where they need to pay. And that, that is no joke. I had a client who literally had over a million dollars in a duffel bag he had to take to pay his payroll taxes. It's really crazy. Um, I just, I would, I gotta gotta have you pause there because I can only imagine them showing up at the tax office with a duffel bag of cash and the state, the the state employees going, Oh my God, what do we do now? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Right. You do not see that every day. Right. Um, It it absolutely blows their mind when they had to do it. Luckily, we've transpired a little bit here and we can uh, move ahead, but um, that, that continues to be a problem. Um, a lot of companies, truth be told, will uh, create entities that have nebulous names that the bank maybe doesn't know what they're doing deeper into the operating activity. That's number one. Number two, credit, state-run credit unions are now uh, a little more of an option. Colorado has figured this out first. Uh, California is coming on board. There's a few credit unions that our clients are working with, uh, including an internet-based bank as well. Might be a teeny bit more expensive, but uh, it gets the job done. Um, It it is absolutely a problem. It is a little bit crazy that legitimate cannabis companies cannot bank with federal banks. Um, Again, the, the options are starting to open up more and more. But that is that has been a huge problem over the last five years uh, for the cannabis space, figuring out how on earth do we get cash into the bank. And most of them had just a vault or vaults. Uh, I've, I've seen clients that they literally have them buried in cement under in the CEO's basement because he doesn't want anybody else to know where it is. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, but uh, cash logs are, are in the audit space. You got to have how, what are the records going in and out? Because they are putting in cash from their dispensaries, pulling them out to pay vendors. 
how do you keep track of that? They've got to have documentation. That's always been a big audit problem as well. Yeah, I mean, it li- it literally sounds like out of a scene out of Breaking Bad, right? Where they they they've... <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. But but yet legal in in the states, and and I I assume that things are going to to get corrected probably the next couple of years at that federal level to make this because it is really un- unsustainable. Question for you though, you, you mentioned that they're looking to go vertical. Uh, a lot of these companies are looking to go vertical. So are there are there restrictions in some states that you're aware of that do make it more like um, the alcohol industry or like the car cars? You know, you can't manufacture and sell a car, you know, in the same state. So would that are trying to break up the distribution network so that that can't happen? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And companies are starting to obviously get smart by putting their licenses in different entities within different states. They'll grow here, they'll distribute there. Uh, And that's why you've got bigger multi-state operators who have licenses in multiple states say, I don't have a distribution network in California. I need to go after a wholesaler who's just up and down the coast of California we need to fold them in. And I just did, uh, I had a client who, who did exactly that. And believe it or not, they merged into a US OTC over the counter company who is trading on the pink sheets. And you might say, well, wait a minute, that's federal. How is that possible that a cannabis related company is traded on the OTC? Well, little known fact, the SEC doesn't really look too deep into the OTC companies if they're in the cannabis space. They're kind of looking the other way. NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, obviously forget it. No, no chance at the moment. Um, that's if you're in the THC, the, the hallucinogen portion of cannabis. If you're in CBD, which is just wellness tinctures and oils and creams and things like that, you might have a chance. It's a little more um, open, so to speak. Uh, but the licensing portion is a challenge in getting all your verticals set up uh, in whether it's in California or be able to go across states. You generally have to kind of stay in your state vertically. Okay, but you can uh, you can you stay in your state vertically, so it's okay to be a vertical within many states. Correct. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, wanted to also ask you about uh, just the. This the sales tax issue. You know, it, it, it has to it has to be completely confusing, especially when we, you know you lay Wayfair on on top of yes. cannabis. Yes, <laughs> yes, huge, huge um, research item that our clients ask us for all the time. How on earth do we deal with this uh, salt state and local tax issue when it comes to cannabis? Um, it, it is absolutely a problem. Wayfair added a big layer of complexity on top of it, no question. Um, but uh, rules are starting to surface and become clearer. Uh, and I know our tax group is heavily involved in this space, both at the SALT level and obviously federal income tax. You'll probably get into it with 280E in a second here. Um, but again, much uh, to, as Ron and I were talking about earlier, a massive compliance undertaking to, to get these taxes right. Uh, how is it calculated? What is the base? Who do I remit to? How do I remit it, et cetera? Which leads to my next question. I'm, I'm sure you're aware that bizarrely uh, in the state of California, they have po- proposed, if I have my numbers right, a 
10 million or 100 million, I think it's 100 million dollar bailout of the cannabis industry uh, because of the compliance issues that are on them. And they say mostly because of the cost of compliance of all of this stuff. And what perplexes me is that they had to have seen this going in, that that putting all of these restrictions on this was going to cause this to be a huge problem from the get go for essentially what I know it, it you know it, it has it's it's a weed. It really is a weed. It will grow anywhere. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely true. And, and you're you're talking about an industry that they tried to legitimize so they could tax and earn revenue from that simply drove people to the black market because why on earth am I going to pay this exorbitant price? Because owners, dispensary owners had to, how else are you going to make money? You've got to get above the margin of your tax rates. And when you're causing these dispensaries to take 40 and 50% tax rates effectively, that's not a good business model. So this is sadly no surprise. They should have had some foresight with how they structured the tax in, in, in relation to cannabis, they blew it. I think they really missed the mark and, and hundred million dollars later is the price. Well, I mean, the great example that, that I've heard is, you know, take, take a bottle of water and say, if the, if this bottle of water is, is worth three or four times the, 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 the amount over on this side of the room than it is on this side of the room, there's a heck of a lot of economic incentive for getting this bottle of water from this side of the room to the other side of the room. And the that's same true. thing with cannabis and, too, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And, and, and what dispensaries are trying to say is, yes, but our strains are pure, they're unique, they're regulated, they're monitored. What you get on the street, you have no idea what you're going to get, which is 100% true. But for the high school kid who just <laughs> wants to get, to, as we used to say, a dime bag back in the day, which is not a dime bag anymore, um, <laughs> Are you going to walk into a dispensary? Might be tough. So um, it, it, it has definitely been a lot of tripping over themselves in the in the uh, tax environment, and uh, it has not produced the results that it hoped. I think everybody thought bonanza, California revenue. This is going to be amazing. But what you've done is obviously really impeded the progress of uh, some legitimate business owners who could absolutely contribute a very long-standing company and business uh, venture to the state. And you're making the point of entry so challenging and expensive that it's difficult to do. And then ultimately having the exact opposite effect that you want to have on the health and safety issue, because what you're encouraging then is for it to go underground and not have the, the regulation to make sure that the stuff that people are using is pure and is not going to harm them in some way. 100% true. Uh, the whole goal was to, in, in, in essence, take that stigma away of, you know, stoner loser. And this is, this is a medicinal purposes. There's, there's no difference from alcohol. We really uh, look at this industry out of the gate, similar to the craft beer um, industry and how it started exploding along the way. It took a little bit, but once people got a taste for it, literally, it really started going crazy. And then huge beverage manufacturers were buying up craft beer places like crazy. Um, we expect and are seeing a similar pattern here as the legitimacy continues to grow um, bigger and bigger um, 
whether it's uh, whether it's another beverage company who would love to fold in a, a cannabis related company. Cannabis beverages are starting to to be incredibly popular. Um, so I know some big beverage manufacturers that are looking at cannabis companies to help them with that. So um, yeah, there, there's a there's a multitude of ways to to skin this cap. Yep. Well, and I would argue that it, it's it's perhaps even safer because m- most people that I have seen on marijuana don't get be- want to get behind the wheel of a car and drive. They're more paranoid about anything and they want to just stay wherever the hell they are, you know, and they will we'll right. Uber in the McDonald's. Anyway, uh, we're up against our next break. Want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. Want to remind you that our sponsor on Patreon, our Patreon channel, patreon.com slash TSOE is 90minds. Need a mind? Get one at 90minds.com. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercial commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well, welcome back everybody we're here with ken teasdale the audit partner at armanino and head of the cannabis group we're getting a master's degree in cannabis and uh ken walk us through some of the tax complications these guys can only deduct cost of goods sold at the federal level and can't deduct anything else. Is that right? Sadly, that is correct. And uh, it's, it's infamously code section 280E. It is my understanding. And again, I'm an audit guy, not a tax guy. My understanding, it's about one or two sentences. But it is so uh, strict in what it allows you to deduct, which is exactly right, Ron, your cost of goods sold. That is, that is it. No GNA, no selling expense, no marketing expense, nothing, which makes your effective tax rate ginormous, which is what Ed and I were talking about earlier. The, the, the cost of entry is very high and it, it's, it's onerous, quite frankly. And what are some of the strategies to help these folks get around that? Yep. Uh, a lot of, a lot of creative allocations of expenses. So hmm, my rent expense, but I've got a growth facility that is 
that is towards my cost of my goods. I've got payroll that can go there. I've got electricity that goes there. Dispensaries, the same. Uh, manufacturers are getting quite creative on allocating what uh, below the line type costs into cost of goods sold, coming up with an average inventory costing that has a lot of estimates in it, which again relates to more complicated audit work. We've got to get comfortable with how they're valuing this inventory, how they're allocating this cost. We're not necessarily, unless they are a C corporation where they need to do a tax provision for audit purposes, I don't wanna to get too technical. Um, we as auditors don't need to get too deep into the tax piece of it. Again, unless they are a, a C corporation. S corps or LLCs, they flow through, that's the shareholders issue. Um, but at the C-Corp level, we've got to pay attention to how they're allocating costs because, you know, no business can stay in business if all they can deduct is, is cost of goods sold and that's it and everything else is not deductible. That, that makes for a big taxable income number. Ken, we were talking on the break about Canada and I, I, I've read that there's several IPOs up there. What's been your experience with the Canadian market? Yeah, that, that has been the only, um, or should I say, the largest liquidity play for cannabis companies to date. Since they can't go public on a NASDAQ or a New York stock exchange, they're moving up north, uh, the Canadian stock exchange, and then there's provinces in between, the Toronto stock exchange, Ontario, uh, and so, far, so on and so forth. They are using that market where cannabis is fully legal, federally legal at their level and doing an IPO uh, at that, at the, in that market. Um, it had a, a very big bonanza and spike in pricing and valuations a few years ago. That has since leveled off a little bit, but the activity that I am seeing in my particular practice are a lot of companies trying to do either straight IPOs in Canada, or they're doing uh, RTOs, which are reverse takeovers, where their company will merge into an already existing Canadian shell that has really no operations. Um, they will merge into that company. Uh, Canadian PubCo takes over with the operations in the U.S. They're instantly public and trading. And it's a much cheaper, quicker option than a full IPO where you have to do all the capital raises and investors uh, getting them in and, and the money markets and the whole bit. So uh, that, that has been a big play. Um, we were fortunate as a firm to be a part of the largest Canadian SPAC, Special Purpose mm -hmm. Acquisition Company, which is a similar type play to an RTO. Um, bunch of money is raised in a shell, 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars with the intent of buying cannabis companies. Um, we had uh, the, the great pleasure of being a part of that. That went public uh, late last year and uh, continues to be a big player today. So Canadian market is, is very popular in the cannabis space and where most companies, as they get mature, they want to go to. That's interesting. How did the industry do through COVID last couple of years, year and a half? Maybe it's not surprising incredibly well, especially the organizations that figured out how to deliver uh, or companies that had a delivery service for cannabis uh, because everybody was at home. Everybody needed to relax a little bit. A lot of folks, they, they were um, uh, 
designated as uh, as a required company in during COVID, right? So they were able to continue to um, open their doors. They had to be careful with protocols, but once they figured out, you know, doorstep delivery or curbside pickup, cannabis companies really thrived because people uh, people needed it to relax at times. And folks who had never tried it before tried it for the first time and and used COVID as a as a as a springboard and an opportunity to maybe I should check this out. So cannabis companies overall, uh, I think, took an initial hit first few weeks and then started really thriving. Wow. Have you seen any subscription plays in this market where people can sign up and get regular, you know, like you can with Harry's razors and things like that? I have not personally seen them. I just uh, am going to be involved in, in a company that is a delivery service in California that has specific menus, menu by location. It's called an ASAP menu. If you want uh, something within an hour, here are your choices. If you want something within 24 hours or more, here's a broader choice that you can have. Um, I, I personally haven't seen a subscription model yet, but that is, uh, uh, it's gotta be out there. It just has to be, that's just the smart way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You want that annual recurring revenue, right? The, the whole business. That's how it want. works. Yep. Uh, I know Chuck Schumer has thrown a bill into the hopper to legalize marijuana at the federal level, but he also sets it, it also sets up a federal regulatory regime and a federal tax regime. Any chance of this happening? Do you see within the Biden administration? Uh, obviously this administration is more favorable to the cannabis industry than the former administration. Uh, I've, I've talked to many clients and insiders who feel it will happen during the Biden four years. Some feel as soon as one to two years. I, I think, I personally think, my personal opinion, uh, it's going to take a teeny bit longer than that, but it is inevitable. that There is no way that the uh, federal government is going to continue to draw that line in the sand. There's too much momentum. As Ed said, 45 of 50 states in some way or form whether it's medical use or full adult use, have laws uh, regulating cannabis. And it's just inevitable before it becomes ridiculous for the feds not to make it legal. So it's going to happen um, probably within the next two, three years is, is my take on it. Wow. That'll be a shot in the arm, won't it, for the industry? Yes. And say, wow. Then, uh, then look out because then banks are allowed to get into it. Get and into it. now you're going to have a bonanza. Wow, that'd be great. You think the stock markets will allow them to list? I, I think that will be in short order. Right after the, the the feds make this legal, folks are going to flock to the stock exchanges in the U.S. Uh, to to take their probably either Canadian company public or organize here uh, in the states and take it public on the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange. No doubt about it. Uh, and this is, we're just starting to see uh, venture capital funds and private equity funds starting to get organized specifically to invest in cannabis. That will grow exponentially as well. Now you're going to have true legitimate uh, private equity funds that are going after cannabis specific companies uh, once, once federal uh, makes it legal. Ken, I see a lot of smaller firms moving into this niche and specializing in it because yep. like you said, it's growing 
how many, and, and I know Armanino is like the 21st, it may even be higher now, firm in the country ranked in the top 100. How many of the other top 100 firms are playing in this space as well? Not many. Obviously, maybe not obviously, the big four have sat on the sidelines the entire time. They will not touch it. If you touch the plant, they're out. That used to be our policy until it was mm. uh, adult use legal in, in the state of California as a firm. Uh, there are only, I can count on one hand, top 100 firms that are in this space legitimately, not dabbling, like really investing in it. Uh, when we go to market and are uh, competing with uh, some other firms uh, for some of the more reputable cannabis companies, we see the same names over and over and over again. There's really only two or three other firms as large as us who have decided to kind of jump in the deep end here. And like you said, Ron, the, the prevailing situation is small, boutique, specialty firms who have said, why not specialize in this? And they've put their stake in the ground and said, we're going to be, we're going to be experts in cannabis in our local region. That's been more the norm. We're getting lots of calls of cannabis companies who are outgrowing their current CPA because mm -hmm. they were a small firm. They're, they're, the client is now growing to a, to a, you know, a size that that company can't, that firm can't handle it anymore. They're coming to a firm our size because we have the, the strength and the leverage and the firepower to, to service them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Ken, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on the Soul of Enterprise and uh, educating us on this fascinating industry that it just looks like its future is bright. Looks like the gold rush <laughs> has come back to California. So, uh, folks, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at bearsage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. 
And we are back with our last segment with Ken Teasdale. Ken, uh, you mentioned and talking with Ron that you really think that the first step in this big unraveling and getting that more normalized is, uh, I guess, the, the the repeal or at least the descheduling of marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. If you were the wizard of, of, of marijuana Oz and were to give a program for how, how to start to dis, dismantle all of the craziness, after that, what comes next? What, do you, what, do you, what, what would be the best process to make this, uh, to get this optimized as quickly as possible in your view? Yeah, I mean, look, I, 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 would, I would hope that the, the feds would not just um, make it legal. They, I, I hope they wouldn't do the opposite, which is go deep into regulations. Okay, we're, we're now going to oversee it. I would, I would not want that. To happen at all let's let the capital markets take its form let's hope but i have <laughs> yeah. anyway yeah that's not what you wanted but <laughs> that's what i would see would would make the most sense is let's let's let these organizations function let's let them pay their state taxes and their federal taxes at a normal rate and i think this industry kind of takes care of itself you've got to have some regulation so don't get me wrong you cannot have everybody just uh, motoring on as, as they see fit. There has to be probably federal laws around it. Just it can't be illegal anymore. It's, it's ridiculous. So let, let's have very little regulation to make sure there's some reporting other than tax returns. You probably have to have some sort of reporting at the federal level. We already have at the state level uh, an inventory system that is state run that tracks movement of marijuana plants. So you have to report how things are being moved. Something similar probably needs to be instigated at the federal level. So there is some oversight in seeing how everything moves along the way. Outside of that, let the businesses roll. Okay. And uh, what, what about the, the, the notion that cigarette smoking is on the decline? Is it also the case that Marijuana, the, the ingestion of, of of marijuana through smoking it is also on the decline, and it's seeing we're seeing much more of an increase in the either edibles or even vaping. Is that where where the innovation is happening in the space? Yes, very very much so. Edibles have come a really long way. The uh, the, the brownies of the seventies are are much more sophisticated. There are some really really interesting, literally gourmet foods that have cannabis infused in it. Um, and I, I just don't feel that the, the vape pen issue that happened a couple years ago, year and a half mm -hmm. or so ago, where a particular manufacturer had an issue with having a particular vitamin within their vape pen unit that caused these respiratory problems in folks who were using those, that has since been solved. So vape pens i have a, a client heavy into the vape pen business who took about a 30 percent hit overnight when that whole um in, incident happened um that has since normalized and stabilized uh i think uh the vape pen business is is still going strong and probably will continue but i would agree that the edible business is going to equal or surpass vape pens with the with the oils and tinctures and things like that that you that you would ingest um there's a particular company out there 
who is setting up retail shops, all they do is edibles. And they are, they're starting in California and they're going to make their way through the nation. It's going to be a big, big play. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and you may not have uh, too much because it's not related in any way to the business side of it, but what do you think happens from from the, the criminal justice standpoint in terms of all of these folks who are in prison for marijuana violations, which are no longer active? And the, let me ask you that question because I have, I have a follow-up to that that's related. Yeah, it, it's, it's sad. Um, I, I think you know, I'm certainly no lawyer. You got to look at those cases and potentially throw them out and get those folks back out. There is provisions with dispensary owners that the state will give you credits if you have a, uh, an owner who had been criminalized for the use of marijuana and under the old mm. rules. If you have an owner of that dispensary or company, you will actually get state credits for that. So they're trying to make reparations, so to speak, for the, uh, the, the sins of the past. But yeah, if you've got folks who are in, uh, you know, serving long-term sentences, maybe it was a third strike at the time, a simple thing that pushed them over the edge, probably not fair. Yeah. The mandatory minimums law was a complete disaster. And interestingly enough, so so was a lot of the, the, the war on drug stuff that ironically, Joe Biden was a big Part of and even the Congressional Black Caucus was a huge proponent of these laws when they were when they were first passed. Really interesting to see how that's come yep. full circle. No, absolutely true. War on drugs was uh, a little bit of a disaster, probably a big one, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, which so that let, let me the follow up question. Do you have any idea what the exposure is even I know in the past or in current cases of the civil asset forfeiture that's in, been involved in the, mar- in the marijuana industry? I mean, it's got it's got to be a huge number. Yep. Uh, I, I don't get involved in that space specifically, so I don't have a ton of knowledge there, but there, there's no doubt about it. it. It is a big number. It is a big problem and it needs to be solved. Do you, does that still happen? Have you had, had, had customers that have had that, that problem happen to them when, when a, a state decides to get involved or even the feds? Because they've still been involved in some of those relatively recently in the last four or five years. Yeah, fortunately, no. I have not had a particular client who has had that kind of seizure happen. Um, I know it happens, uh, but Luckily, uh, clients that I've worked with have, have been able to escape that. And it's a real possibility. It's always hanging over their head. Yeah. We had one, a, a, a thing down here in, in Texas with a, a friend of a friend of our, our family that, that owned a, a shop that they, they, they sold. Um, it, was the, it wasn't marijuana. It was the, the infused um, uh, spice that they would, would do. And it was supposed to be uh, not supposed to be consumed. But everyone knew, wink, wink, nod, nod, and a huge sure. civil asset forfeiture case that was involved in that. So really, really bad stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the so you uh, your the future is bright for for cannabis. You're 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 thinking, and uh, and that will continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. I'm incredibly bullish on the industry. I think it is is just going to snowball as as we're approaching the inevitability of federally uh, legal uh, marijuana industry. Um, It it is incredibly bright. There are tons of opportunities. Um, Folks who are in numerous other business industries are leaving 
to come start cannabis companies. We're seeing it all the time. And that's what I alluded to at the kind of the top of the show. The evolution that I've personally seen over the last just three years, three and a half years of the quality of C-suite executives, owners of, of cannabis companies three years ago to now is night and day. You've got your traditional MBAs, uh, folks from big, big industry who have made a few dollars somewhere else and said, this is a fantastic opportunity. And these are legit business owners who want to make a play in this space. And I think it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Including uh, the former libertarian candidate for president, Gary Johnson, who ran an extraordinarily yeah. successful uh, a real estate and, and construction company in, in his home state <laughs> and now and now has shifted over to, to marijuana. So there there you go. Been no surprise there, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And you're you're having a bunch of retired athletes who are getting involved in this space too. And for the younger generation, that is, you know, they want to see these name brands. I mean Urkel. Remember Urkel? Yeah, sure. He that actor has his own line, Purple Urkel. And I see I just gave him a free plug. Um, wow. He has come out with that. I mean, tons of athletes that our firm's even working with and other firms. It's, it's a it's it's a big big opportunity. Yeah, but and but the question is, will there be red and blue companies? Because you know we have to now divide everything. And <laughs> <laughs> but I think marijuana yeah. is going to be much more ubiquitous. Very is a very more equal opportunity than a lot of people think. So I agree with that. I would agree with that. All right. Well, Ken Teasdale, thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. We really appreciate you spending time with us today and educating us on this fascinating industry. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? We're going to be talking to economist Anthony Daniels, Ed. Davies, Anthony Davies. Oh, Davies, sorry. From, yep, I believe yep. Duquesne University. Duquesne, so that's okay. great. We'll look forward to that conversation. All right, Ron, I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com for more information and upcoming shows. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.